Welcome back to The Drop. This is Michael Saramella here to talk about everything that happened this week in surfing. Sorry, first of all, for all the sounds in the background. I'm in sort of like a mix between like a jungle and a highway, which is not the best for recording a podcast. Um, There's dog barking at some point, but we'll get through it. And hopefully the news this week will sort of overcome any auditory issues because there's a lot of good stuff in this episode first and foremost we got the stab highway europe presented by monster energy finale buck and i are going to give you some behind the scenes but no spoilers we're also going to go a little bit further into the question should the wsl let number six surf kelly slater has a cameo so you're going to want to hear that we have a stab interview with the one and only lewis samuels um, perhaps one of the most iconic surf journalists of all time and he gives sort of a good look back at what his career, kind of how it all transpired and what it means to him now. We also give you an idea of which wetsuit brands are favored most by Stab Premium members. It's from the Stab Audience survey and some interesting data in there. And another story about Kelly Slater that you're just gonna have to hear to believe. And of course, a surf sin. So let's drop in. Mikey, hello, how are you? I would like to file a complaint. Uh, what for? Well, I know there's probably someone out there and I want them to know they're not alone who has experienced this before. Have you ever had a haircut and then you go surf in a wetsuit after and then for like the foreseeable future, your wetsuit is itchy? No. Never? I always wash my hair after I get a haircut. Oh, uh, well, I kind of, I, my wife did it. And then, and then I, now I can't get the hair out of my wetsuit. I know somebody else has experienced this. And it's very frustrating. Okay. Well, I have some good news for you, Buck. Um, we've been discussing this lately on the U.S. Slack chat, but it sounds like we're gearing up for Best Wetsuits 2020. I guess it'll be Best Wetsuits of 2024, technically, but filmed in 2023. That's the future. Sounds like we're going to Europe. Sounds like we're going to have about 43 obscure European wetsuit brands involved, so I think that you'll... Uh, oh, you can just trade yeah. it out for a new one pretty soon now. <laughs> Sign me up. There's so many obscure ones over here, and I want to wear all of them. And I won't put... I probably will put some hair in them, I'm going to be honest. I was going to say a true respect, but it's going to – I'll get hair in the wetsuits. I shed a lot anyway. Yeah. It's weird. Well, the the best part about best wetsuits is um, you get to, like, give them out as gifts afterwards. Oh, yeah. And there's nothing like a gift that you've moderately peed in. Yeah, that is kind of nice. It's uh, There's a certain level of connection that's forged at that moment, I think. So looking forward to that. We're going to be talking wetsuits later. we got a big week. We do. Let's get into the news. Let's go. <laughs> Stab Highway Europe presented by Monster Energy episode five. That is the final. That is the episode that champions are born. In which champions are born, and uh, the series is over. Everybody has a big night and goes home. Mikey, how's it feel? Well, I remember this night. It was, or I really remember the last day, and it was like. So much had obviously gone into this whole thing. We obviously didn't get the best waves, so we were like having to figure out all these different angles and challenges that we could actually have the surfers do to keep things interesting. And um, yeah, the last challenge was like really, I think, pretty funny for what the opportunities that we had available to us. And you know, one team obviously came out victorious, and that last night celebration was just like this combination of everybody so tired and so exhausted and probably just wants to go home, but also they just like survived this war together. So like it was just this last burst of energy kind of. And then, um, yeah, everybody looked like fucking zombies the next day and presumably found their way home, except for Mackenzie Bowden, who's still in Europe somewhere. Yep, <laughs> yep, exactly. Um I want to get back to that last uh, that last night celebration, how the kind of trip wrapped up for uh, a little behind the scenes action. But anyway, overview of this episode: we start where we left off last week, which is how the other teams could weasel their way back into the final. And what we did there was the hundred foot air challenge, where we got a jet ski and we went to the home of the one hundred foot wave, Nazare, of course. And we wanted surfers just to do the biggest air possible. Um, They're able to choose straps or no straps. And originally we were hoping that the waves would be, I mean, we knew we weren't going to get like a proper winter swell, but like, I think watching somebody just set out with a strap board to do the highest air they can um, would be fucking incredible to watch. Cause I feel like usually straps is like, Oh, let me try a crazy flip that I can't do when I have to actually not have my feet attached to a board. And so I was hoping that we'd get, you know, people doing these loony straight airs that are just to the moon. 
didn't quite unpack like that, did it? Uh, Nick Von Rupp called it the smallest Nazare he's ever seen. Which is kind of an honor because it is literally the place where everybody goes to get a big wave and we were able to get the smallest wave there. So it's, it's rare. Uh, statistically speaking, it's, it's, I think, rarer than getting, um, you know, a, I don't know how to measure waves. Do the fucking, we'll talk to that drone guy again or something because I'm not going to say 74 foot or whatever. It's just, no, enough. Okay, we'll get into that in the winter. But, yeah, everybody goes for it when it's big. We were able to get the rare swell there, which is the small one. and um, The century swell. Century swell. The smallest swell of the century. I've surfed that wave quite a bit when it's small. Not that small, but when it's just like a head-high, overhead day. And it is so fun at that size. And I've found it's funny, especially in the winter, um, summer, I think people are more just attuned to like, Hey, we're going to go spend a nice day on the beach. But in the winter, you'll see like essentially these tour buses of people unload. And you could tell, like, I'd imagine it's like somebody going to Iceland or something or Norway and thinking that they're going to see the Northern lights, but like not realizing that there's like atmospheric conditions that are dependent on that. Like I've just seen people get so sad when they climb off a bus at Nazare and see that it's not just magically a million feet. Um, and yeah, we didn't get in a million feet, but we still had an exciting toe contest and a team weaseled their way back into the final. It was a team that I think we had a gut feeling. I had a gut feeling that day who was going to work their way back in. And, um, I think it worked out the right way. Yeah. Well, there was, um, one team believed that they were just fated to make it into the final. Um, they really believed that they had done highway as well as you could do it. And I can't say that they're wrong. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. You'll just have to watch and see who makes it into the final. But the one team that we know is in the final is the red team because they had the most cumulative points after the France, Spain, and Portuguese regions. So they went straight into it after episode four. And one of the things that stood out most to me was that um, they came in full red garb to the final challenge. And I talked to Zoe about this. She's the team captain. And she said that last year she was actually intimidated by the tan team rocking up in those tan velour track suits. She said that pretty much at that point, she kind of knew that they had lost. Like the tan team just had committed so hard to the whole entire thing that it was like, just seems like they're destined to win. So the red team brought that same energy this year. And we're going to see if it pans out. For Let's them. see. Go check it out. You hinted at it before the, the final challenge. It was so it was wild having to like plan that because there is a side of it. That's like a fun trip and it's, you know, joking around. It's kind of silly stuff. But then there's a side of it where like, you have to be fair. You have to get it right. Like you can't just like make it this random thing where after 10 days, all of a sudden somebody wins. And with that challenge, it was with that series of challenges, I guess I'll say it was, we were hoping we found that line. And I think we did, which was, I was really happy about, and I think it was really entertaining as well. So I think I think we did good on that final challenge with the conditions that were available to us. And uh, go check it out. And then, yeah, that last night, that was a fucking blowout. Uh, we were at You in the Sea, which is a nice hotel in Ericera that I recommend if you are ever in town. It's like, I don't think it's too expensive and it's really nice. So we stayed there. It was a great place to stay after a long road trip. Um, and then the way that highway ended for me, I mean, I, I live here, but we had these weird things where the vans we rented, we had to get back to Madrid, and somehow my keys went missing that night, even though I can promise you nobody drove. It was literally, we had to retrace an Uber, so somebody took keys in an Uber, um, and I had to climb the wall of a villa because they ended up at a bachelorette party at this villa, and nobody was answering the phone. Nobody really knew these people. So I just had to show up and I couldn't get in the gate. So I climbed in and they just handed me the keys immediately. Like, You're probably here for these. Right. And then I had to almost miss my flight. I had to drive a van five hours to Madrid just to fly back just so I could be back at my house. And I remember I was in the airport in Madrid and I just, I had maybe 30 minutes before my flight and I just had a beer. And I was like, it's over. Like the highway is behind me now. Um, and so what a uh, what an intense trip. Go go check out the final. Go see what happens. Yeah, and also check out the Stab Highway Day Zero clip, the day before Highway, which is ironically the only day that we had real waves the entire trip. We basically everybody got to France 
the day before it started, we were staying at this place called Joe and Joe Hostel right in Hossiger. It was great. And we woke up to like pumping Hossiger in late May, which is pretty rare, I think. Um, we surfed La Graviere in the morning, and then we went to Lake Anou in the afternoon. And it was basically like dream postcard France, like head high, slightly overhead, tubing, just perfect waves. And that was the last time that anybody surfed a decent wave the entire trip. Um, and just one more reminder that right now I'm actually with the winners at House of Somos in Costa Rica. So we're making our, you know, stab premium film for the winners. You'll obviously find out who those people are next week. We'll announce it on the podcast. It'll also be on the website, Instagram, et cetera. I think we're going to announce on Monday. So we're not going to spoil it obviously up until then, but I would recommend watching late this week or over the weekend. If you don't want to find out who wins before you see it yourself, go check it out. Should the WSL let number six surf? Ooh, this is a hot question at the moment. So Ethan Ewing went into the Tahiti contest ranked second. He fractured his L3, L4 vertebrae while free surfing. That bumped him down to third, I believe. Is that correct, Mikey? Yes. So he couldn't surf, bumped down one spot, and now we've got the finals coming up on September 8th. That's coming up fast, so only a few weeks away. And... uh you normally don't recover from an injury like that in any amount of time that's similar to that, although we'll get to this, but we are hearing some whispers. And there is a person named Gabriel Medina who's currently ranked sixth so that he could potentially be worked into this top five thing to keep it top five men, top five women, and still have a five-person showdown on both sides. The WSL told us that wouldn't happen, but we still figured, hey, it's worth posing this question, seeing how our audience feels, seeing how the surf world feels, and uh, just throwing the idea out there. And so we've got a lot of that information right here, don't we? Yeah, we sure do. So obviously Stace and I talked about this on last week's podcast, and I said we were going to do something on the site about it. So this is it, and Ethan Davis knocked it out of the park. He actually brought up some points that I hadn't considered. So the most interesting of those was the Olympic argument, because basically by allowing Gabriel Medina to surf in lowers, you would put him now in contention to get an Olympic spot, which they're currently owned by Felipe Toledo and Joao Chianca on the Brazilian men's side. As we know, you can only have two people per country, per gender in the Olympics, uh, not including what can happen with the ISA, but that's not really relevant right now. So as of now, the way that it's set up with, you know, either Ethan Ewing competing or the WSL not allowing that sixth person to move up if he does pull out with injury, Joao Chianca has a guaranteed spot in the 2024 Olympics. And to sort of change that rule just at the very end, right before the finish line, is pretty Bush League, I would imagine. Like, you'd be pretty freaking pissed if you were Joao's camp. Of course, he could still beat Medina and keep that spot, but even the idea of it being potentially taken away is pretty brutal. However, the public feels differently. 78% of the people on our Instagram story voted that the WSL should let the number six surfer surf in the case that one of the top five is injured. We really tried to make it a point in this story that this is less about Ethan Ewing and Gabriel Medina and more about the principle because as long as the WSL finals exist and as long as surfing remains a relatively dangerous sport, there are going to be circumstances where people are injured going into that last event of the year. So this is something that we're going to see again and again. So it's really about establishing a fair precedent moving forward. On the other hand, Kelly Slater came in and he gave like a really thorough and thoughtful breakdown of what he's been thinking. So Kelly says, I've been wondering about this. If one person is out of an event for injury, someone replaces them. If Felipe gets hurt now, could nobody beat him and he maintains his spot for the title? Ethan will only drop one spot whether he were to surf and lose or doesn't surf. With any new format, there are things to be worked out. I personally think the next person should fill in. If four people were injured, there would just be a default winner in this scenario, which defeats the purpose of a surf-off. Medina coming from nowhere to win would be a big story. Which is really a compelling argument when you consider the fact that the WSL finals were only created to drum up more entertainment, right? I think anybody would agree that it is not the most fair way to crown a surfing world champion. But if that's the angle you're going for, why not lean into yeah, it? Well, the thing that I don't, the point that I want to make is that say we had the old system still and it was just a full calendar year and it ends at pipe. Say it's November. So pipes coming up in December 
and there are five people contention. One of those people gets hurt. Guess what? They can't win the world title. And guess what? They can fall back in the rankings. So that's not immediately tied to this new system, I don't think. Like, it would have been the same situation if you were a world title contender and got hurt before Pipe. Like, it, it's it's not... The Kelly. The thing that's interesting about Kelly's point to me is that, like, okay, when you take it to that high level of, like, what happens if somebody who's sitting in number one gets hurt, that's a fucking hard decision. Um, but in terms of, like, pinning this all in the final five, it's like, well, this would have been just as relevant at Pipeline. Like, you could fall back. Um, the Joao point's really good. I mean especially kind of given his history, you can't make these decisions based off a little thing like this, but like, I don't know. Imagine if Gabe did get in, beat him, stole that Olympic spot. Like it just would seem after his drama with the mid-year cut and he had that, you know, he was up against top seeds due to some, the seeding system that they switched away from. Like, I think he just probably look at the league and be like, fuck you guys. Like, <laughs> what do you have against me? Um, but other than that, I mean, I think, clearly you said that 78% of our audience said yes. Like, I think like from an audience perspective, from just wanting to watch interesting surfing, interesting things happen. Like how could you not want it? Yeah. And it's like, just that's the whole point of the WSL finals, you know? So it's like, why not just keep with that? Um, on the other side of the argument is ironically somebody who comments under the name of Selly Clater. And he disagrees with Kelly saying, exaggerate the example. If numbers two to five are injured, do six to do surfers six to nine get into the top five and get a shot at the title? The answer is absolutely not. So that's somebody obviously taking one example, like sort of to the logical extreme, which is a good practice in most cases. Like to see like one thing that I I forget what the rule is called or whatever, but it's like if it's you know even if somebody do if one person getting away with something doesn't really affect it, you have to think more of like what if everybody did this, and that is kind of how you have to think about setting rules. However, the top comment of the week was, I can think of one reason why the WSL won't let Gabriel surf in the final five. And that comment doesn't mean much on its face. It seems very vague. What reason is he talking about? Is it anti-Brazilian? Is it this? Is it that? But then you go back to the person's handle and it becomes a lot more clear. This comment was made by the WSL is goofy phobic. It's and I mean to me some of the best comments ever. Like they tie the comment to the handle, and I just I really enjoy when people do that. And so the WSL is goofy phobic. You got the top comment this week on the on the website. Uh, he was my pick as well. It was just it was well played. I just it's I mean it ha people play this up a lot. The whole hey WSL hates laughs, hates goofy foots, but when you do it right it still works okay and that one worked well i mean buck let's think about this because I, I i actually this this brought me down a bit of a rabbit hole has there ever been a goofy foot leader of the wsl elo's regular sophie goldschmidt no fucking clue let's call her parallel stance um certainly all the old heads like rabbit and those guys those were all regular footers what was brody Carr? what was brody Carr? we're we're on air we need to we're look at this yeah it. He it kind of sounds like a goofy foot, actually, now that you say his name. It does, doesn't he? Yeah. More on that soon, but one thing to note here is that we've heard that Ethan Ewing booked a flight to LAX and ordered a fresh batch of DHDs. There is a rumor that he is going to be there, that the injury is not as bad as it sounded, and he doesn't really risk making it more severe so that is a whisper we're hearing it's hard to confirm people are obviously very touchy about this type of thing so there's a chance that none of this matters and uh ethan's just there yeah it's true but it is honestly an in interesting conversation for the future because at some point somebody's bound to be injured in the top five and it sounds like the wsl regardless of how people feel are not going to change their rules at least this year but we have seen them change their rules a lot you know and I think that, you know, people will complain about that, but I actually think that that's a good sign of growth and maturity. Like, if you're just so staunch that you'll never, ever change your rules because you just think that you're right and changing them, like, looks weak or something, I actually think that's a really weak position. So hopefully the WSL will continue to sort of really think critically about these things and make the best decisions for surfing moving forward. Oh, uh, look at you always putting surfing at heart. This stab interview with lewis samuels Ooh, this was delightful i really enjoyed the read nice work pedro but lewis samuels okay surf writer surf journalist if you will interchangeable whatever you want to call it 
But I guess we can still call him that. But basically, I think he really rose to fame. Can we say that? Fame? Infamy? Infamy. There you go. Let's say infamy, not fame. He rose to infamy for his power rankings segment that he was doing for Surfline, in which he was just so brutal, so funny, so spot on many times, but just was raw, I'll say. Uh, it got to a point where I think he got too raw with them, and so he ended up just starting his own website, postsurf.com. This was kind of in that era internet where like blogs were working and people were focusing on them. I don't think it would work now. Um, and again, he just continued that just unchained writing. He had no financial motive to say things one way or another. He just really wrote how he felt. And he was very praising of people when he felt like they deserved it. And if they weren't, he would not praise them. And he also had a gift in... Um, in humor, I'd say. There are a lot of things that he did there that were really, really funny. And at least in my generation, I don't think I've seen somebody that was that good at at whatever you want to call what he was doing. Was I, I'm such a fucking fan of his work, and it was really nice to hear from him. Yeah, and hearing, you know, now that he's a bit older and probably more mature, like I'm sure you and I even look back on stuff that we've written in the past, like what the fuck, but hearing how he thinks about it all now is really interesting, but he still stands by like a lot of the principles that he was sort of following back then, which first and foremost is that surf writing is not a career, um, which I think is really funny because you and I have kind of made a career out of that, <laughs> but it's basically like what his point is, it's basically just an expanded, it's like a scam. The whole thing is really like a scam. And the problem is that the only way that it's worthwhile for somebody doing it is if you like go so far in that scam that you're, you know, you're getting money from it in ways that essentially corrupts your writing. Um, like even, I mean, before this podcast, like you and I chatted about a few different topics that are like hilarious. Um, and that I'm sure people would love to hear about, but because of the position that we're in and the interests that are involved, like we can't just like air that out right now, at least down the line, maybe we can, but he's just so right. And because he never really had that financial motive in it, like he was obviously getting paid to do what he was doing, but he never saw it as a career as we have. He was able to say things that people never really could before except nowadays people can because there's something like social media but back then he was the only one with a platform to share such thoughts without really facing any major repercussions so he was in this really sweet spot and i think that's why he has such like an outsized sort of presence in the world of surf journalism on top of of course the fact that he was one of the best to ever do it it's like all these things came together um, for him to just have this this brilliant little moment that everybody remembers with such nostalgia and like fond memories, except for a few surfers. Except for a few, which we'll hear we'll hear about shortly. Uh, but in terms of just surf riding is a scam thing, there's a story in here about him essentially having his honeymoon paid for because he wasn't going to bring a board, and so he made up a story idea to to just ask to borrow boards wherever he went and write about it. And so that was kind of how he looked at the whole world. Like, let me just use this as an excuse to, like, experience things I wouldn't otherwise. And so that to me is surf riding. Having your honeymoon paid for because you're able to just figure out some idea. That's fucking brilliant. What a nice way to look at it. Um, and then there's also some other – one other really interesting thing that was pulled from this interview, I think, is because as we're about to hear, different surfers interpreted it in different ways, what he was doing. Some people really liked him. Some people kind of got it more, like said, okay, this guy, yes, when he sees something that he's not a big fan of, he will address it, and sometimes he addresses it in a funny way. Some people, I think, got that. Some people didn't at all. Um, Kelly seemed to be in the camp that got what he was doing and was a fan. Probably didn't hurt that Kelly was winning a bunch of shit at this time, too, so he was mostly kind to Kelly. Um, Kelly's also, as we're about to find out, Apparently a big fan of harsh truths. Yeah. Yeah, well, I guess so. <laughs> uh, good way to put it. <laughs> but anyway, it got to the point where, like, he had somehow found Lewis's email, and, like, Lewis is watching a shitty webcast back in the day when they were just, like, a tiny little screen and the quality was awful, but we all watched all of them anyway. And Kelly emailed him, and he's, like, watching the contest. He's like, man, this guy's going to surf, like, <laughs> soon. <laughs> like, it's so he kind of had that. It was just an interesting insight, I think, into the way that, 
I, yeah, it's just kind of weird to think about, isn't it? Like Kelly about to surf a heat and he's just like reading something on post surf and then like emailing Lewis and then like probably going out and smashing somebody. It's kind of interesting. So, well, that's another thing too, that like, like you said, he basically got kicked out of Surfline um, because <laughs> of the stuff he was writing. So he, he started his own site called post surf, which was essentially the surf journalism equivalent of Marine layer. Like it was just him throwing up shit on like pretty much a daily basis, you know, just like his thoughts on things and, and whatever. So he was kind of like in that first movement as well of like a, a blogger, um, which was really interesting. And then, yeah, a few other surfers that he has anecdotes with in this are Andy and Bruce Irons. Um, and some of the surfers who really didn't take his writing that well were Ricky Bassnett. Uh, apparently, <laughs> Lewis was the first one to catch on to Ricky's impending perfect season. He called it like two or three events in that he could go all the way. And by perfect season, we mean an entire CT season without a heat win. Um, and then elite. Yeah. And then the, there's a really funny anecdote uh, from when CJ won Mundaka and CJ really liked Lewis and actually has <laughs> always been a fan of people who are, you know, a bit like tongue in cheek and, you know, not pulling punches and stuff. So he wanted Lewis to come to his party to celebrate the win. And in there was Taj's coach, Johnny Gannon. If you remember back in the day when Taj used to, you know, travel with this fucking buff looking dude with, uh, you know, kind of like a weird looking smile. And, uh, Johnny was super pissed about, I guess, something he re- he'd written about either Taj or Johnny. I'm not exactly sure. It's not made clear. So CJ was like trying to bring Lewis in and Johnny kept kicking him out. And it was like this funny back and forth. And at the end, like Lewis, like forgot his keys. And he's like, I, I don't know. Like, can I go get them? <laughs> yeah. It's like, I don't know. You and I have probably both been in situations to a certain degree where we've maybe written something about someone and they were in the vicinity and there's definitely like a, feel like a weird energy vibe sort of thing. But mm, like that, that yeah. overt is pretty pretty uncommon and pretty fucking hilarious but right now we're about to hear some words from lewis on another uh previous ct surfer who really had a problem with him and um how he's kind of thought about that over the years i suppose and um like i said probably matured a little bit in his thinking around it but it doesn't make it any less interesting so let's hear from lewis let's hear and lewis i I know mikey said you got kicked out of surfline but if you want to get back in just send me an email. You you can get in my dad's account. You deserve it. It was at um, the the Bali uh, Rip Curl Surge event that I, I'd already been writing power rankings for, I don't know, maybe a year or something at that point. And um, I guess I had been on some level unnecessarily cruel to Luke just because he was uh, considered to be fabulously good looking. And um, I probably erroneously suggested that he was more interested in his appearance than he was his surfing. Um, and, you know, granted, I do feel like there's a certain type of personality that spends more time, like worrying about what they look like than others. And, um, in some cases it's required of you by culture, right? Like there's pressure obviously on all sorts of people to worry about their appearance. Um, but I don't know that that's really there as like a professional surfer. And, uh, he was somebody who was just like, clearly spent time thinking about what he looked like. And um, that that is part of his job to a certain degree as a sponsored surfer. But long story short, I had been pretty cruel to him in terms of um, suggesting that he was more of a model than a surfer. And uh, I was having a chat with him and Tom Whitaker. And then at a certain point in the conversation, he asked me something about myself. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, I'm Lewis Samuels. I do this power rankings uh, for surf long. And he literally like pushed back from the table and like put his hands in his hair and stood up and just started saying, no fucking why, mate, no fucking why. Like, I want to fucking kill you. And he was more just baffled than anything else. Like he wasn't aggressive or uh, he he was actually just, uh, it was hard for him to square, I think, like who he was talking to with what he'd been reading. Um, And that obviously the things I had said, like took on a much bigger, uh, like picture or meeting in his head and really who I was or what I was saying. And I think we talked about this before a little bit, mm-hmm. this idea of like, it always baffled me why people cared so much what I was saying um, in terms of like, who cares what I think, you know, like all sorts of people think all sorts of things about you in life. And that if you spent your day worrying about that, uh, it's a pretty rough road. Um, and it wasn't like I was a person who, was important in the world, at least in my own mind. 
Um, I guess that maybe they felt like, given there wasn't a lot of public criticism of their surfing at that point, it was important what the media was saying about them. It painted a narrative that probably did impact like his ability to go and get a contract or anything else. Um, so in that way, maybe I was underselling like the impact a single voice could have in an environment in which there aren't a lot of other voices. Like now social media, everyone can say everything. Yeah. It, it makes it all pretty meaningless. But Surfline was giving me at that point this um, forum, the pedestal kind of you could get up on. And like that was just, it was just my opinion coming through in those. It wasn't everyone else's. Um, but anyway, long story short, uh, at some point Luke wrote, uh, or not wrote, was interviewed by Stab, I think, and discussed how he had, you know, truly hated me and had gone to a sports therapist. I think this was before I met him, actually, that he said all this. And that he had had this goal of making the top 10 in order to uh, prove me wrong. And um, that he eventually found it motivating, but it took him a while working through it all with a, um, somebody who specialized in working with athletes on the challenges they were facing mentally. Um, so yeah, that was Luke Steadman. Survey says your favorite wetsuit brand has changed in the last 365 days. This is a story that your boy wrote about the stab user survey data. We've talked about some of these before. It's the one where 7,000 people told us their preferences on a variety of topics. And then we said, hey, these are some good stories we could pull out of here. So this is one about wetsuits. We reveal your preferred wetsuit brands, which, as the title suggests, has changed in the last 365 days, and also what you like in a wetsuit, which uh, we'll kind of unpack all of this. Should we tell people who won? Should we just get into it? Hell yeah, let's do it. All right. So last year, Rip Curl won. They were followed by O'Neill, just by a little bit, and this year O'Neill flipped it, edged ahead. These are tiny margins, but technically O'Neill is now the preferred brand amongst these, amongst our stab audience, or at least the sample of the stab audience. So, how do you feel about that, Mikey? You you gotta get behind any brand that's started by a pirate. Any, especially me. Um, I love it. O'Neill makes great suits. Rip Curl make every. There's so many good suits now. Suits are fucking crazy. How do you feel about? A wetsuit tester. We hinted on this before, but I've not actually done this test before. You've definitely tested more neoprene than me. What do you feel? Do you think our audience is on to something when you look at this uh, this data? Well, O'Neill won the last wetsuit test that I did, which I believe was two years ago. So they made a suit that was like just, it kind of had like all the different features that you need. Like it was super warm, but it also was flexible in the right spots. And it just, yeah, they really put it together pretty masterfully. And it's also a suit that I think is really reliable. Like they strike me as like the Toyota of wetsuits. Like you just know that you're going to get a good one every time and it's going to last you a while. Like it's just, I think that's why people are, there's so much like brand loyalty with O'Neill. And that's why we're seeing their stab premium audience really gets behind them. Cause you just know what you're getting with an O'Neill. It's going to be solid. It's going to be reliable. It's going to be warm. It's going to be comfortable. Um, so I think that's that, that being said, like you said, I mean, so many good wetsuit brands out there nowadays, you actually obviously worked at a wetsuit brand for a long time. You worked at Quicksilver. What were some of the most interesting things that you learned when it comes to like making wetsuits? I learned a lot through that because I mentioned it in the article, but I'd be sitting with the design team because eventually I'd have to help write everything from like, what are we going to name the wetsuits? to what are we going to name the features of the wetsuits? to what are we finally going to say about the wetsuits? How are we going to talk about them everywhere? And so I was lucky to be able to sit with some of the design crew and just kind of be a part of that from not, I, I wouldn't have an influence on the design, but I'd at least be across it. They say, Hey, this is what we're doing. This is why. And so I, I got to think about it a lot more deeply that way. Um, I didn't realize how fucking complicated they were. I I hinted it in the or I write it in the article, but there are so many different parts, and I realized that because there were certain things where I had to write about, like I had to write about what the stitching was, I had to write about what the internal liner was, what the outside liner was, what the neoprene formula was, what the glue is, what this you know. There's so many different things that I just had not considered before, even as somebody who's like grew up in a place where you need wetsuits and has worn a million of them. Um, I didn't realize how important the placement of the panels were. Um, I think 
if you've had a suit where it just feels like shit when you're paddling, um, you may have had some bad panels. But basically, there's so many. It's a complex thing, these wetsuits. Um, but I would say to distill it, the biggest takeaway I'd say I had is I didn't realize how important internal liners were. Um, those can really, really make and break make or break a suit. And what's interesting to me is like how to create these combinations. So basically you could have like, if you want to add heat, you either need a, a neoprene formula or a liner. Like those are probably the easiest way to do it, I think from my understanding. And so it's like, what do you do? You're going to create the warmest suit you possibly can. You could do that, but it's probably going to be quite heavy. You know, are you going to try to find a balance? And like, where are you, how are you going to make that balance? Are you going to do it through the formula plus a heavier liner? Are you going to do it with, you know, it's like, it's a lot of decisions to make to kind of arrive at these suits that are optimized for different things. So yeah, they're just way more complex than I thought. And uh, Rip Curl and O'Neill are doing it right. One thing I walk out too, Billabong sitting comfortably in number three. I recently got some Billabong suits and they're fucking great as well. I hadn't had one in a while, so maybe they've been great for a while. Um, 7,000 people saying that they're good good sign but i was really impressed i hadn't had one in a while and it was a really good suit yeah and so those are obviously like the big brands right and in pretty much any industry you're going to see the big brands get the most support because they're the ones that most people have access to but there are also a lot of smaller brands that are making incredible suits like to me having done a few of these wetsuit tests like yamamoto neoprene is insane like it is crazy it it feels so much smoother and silkier um, and none of the big brands really use it, I think, because the cost margins are probably a lot less. But if you look at a brand like Farrell or whatever, like they make really, really good suits and a few other brands use them as well. So there's a lot of different options out there. It just depends on what you're looking for. But yeah, these are who our, our readers picked as their favorites. And Buckley, you actually had an interesting theory about why O'Neill might have shot up to number one this year. Two words, Katie Simmers. I know it sounds funny. Like I know I think it's easy for surfers to try to like downplay the importance of marketing like being like i'm not gonna buy a certain wetsuit or board shorts or board just because i saw one thing but like people bet a lot of money on you absolutely doing that or at least on a large scale people doing that and so when you look at rip girl like their top riders i don't think were as visible as they have been in the last year i, I think that's kind of changing now but you know gabe had a year off mick is He's still doing a lot in retirement, but he's not standing on podiums anymore. Tyler had a year dealing with injuries, so like kind of their key players weren't as visible. Um, so that was a theory there. And then another thing, just in terms of marketing working or not, there is also no coincidence that both O'Neill and Rip Curl dropped edits this week. Kind of funny timing with this story, but O'Neill sent Rasa Rob, Eli Bukas, and Ian Crane to Morocco, and... Rip Curl released a project with Mick Fanning, Gabe Medina, and Mason Ho in a remote stretch of Australia. No coincidence that we're coming into the Northern Hemisphere winter, which moves a lot of suits for these brands. And uh, yeah, I thought it was kind of funny timing with both these releasing some great films while they're both on top of the leaderboard while we're about to go into wetsuit season. So this shit works and people are thinking about this behind the scenes. <laughs> Kelly Slater to narrate Julian Assange documentary. Do we even have to go into it? It's just, I think it's just there. Like, this isn't surprising. Just move on. Like, why Why would you wake up in 2023 and think that Kelly Slater is not narrating a Julian Assange documentary? I just love how diverse Kelly's interests are. Like, it's incredible. The man has 11 surfing world titles. He has a lumber company. Um, he's kind of like, I'm starting to see him, and he would probably hate, this comparison but also like it's just he also he's backing lewis uh he's backing lewis samuels doing his hard truth he's kind of like the elon musk of surfing like he just wants to kind of like have his hand and everything and like be a part of the conversation and the zeitgeist so if you don't know julian assange's story he basically leaked a bunch of classified quote-unquote um, information about the u.s government basically spying on not just its own people but people in other countries as well the U.S. deemed this as a national security threat, so they wanted to arrest him. Um, Julian Assange fled, and he kind of bounced around a little bit, but he ended up, he's now in prison in Britain. Um, and basically, 
the U.S. He, he's facing 175 years in prison in the U.S. if he does get extradited. So this film is basically trying to show that what he did wasn't wrong, but in fact it was very right. And Kelly Slater's been one of his biggest and most vocal proponents from like uh, – We'll call Kelly a list for this. Oh yeah, <laughs> for this matter, um, from like an a list person. So as a result, the person who's making his documentary has tapped Kelly to be one of its narrators because he's just been on Julian Assange's side the whole time, which is like, I think kind of the cool stance to take. Like this guy went out and he's he's not leaking. I mean, yeah, technically the information he leaked could be taken by enemies of the u.s and used against us but also i think it's important to know that when the government is doing things that are wrong toward us too so i yeah i see both sides but i i think without knowing everything about this story that i would also probably side with julian assange that it was more good than bad but kelly's gung-ho on this and he's going to be narrating a documentary about a political um what would we call him figure political renegade a political renegade yeah political renegade i mean i don't really get i'm sure there is an argument really against it but like yeah you said it was information about what was going on in the u.s but also some stuff overseas just these horrible things that were happening in iraq and afghanistan that yeah as a citizen maybe you'd want to know that like you're spend a lot on taxes and the military is quite strong and it's doing some naughty things it's information you should have but i guess he obtained it illegally which is the charge and uh it's just very 2023 that kelly's narrating this i just i don't know what it will be tomorrow but i look forward to waking up and seeing what kelly's up to next um at this point it's hard to be surprised and i fucking love it oh there's actually a gofundme to support that film you i think they still need some production costs covered but there is a GoFundMe that I would say you might want to consider supporting over that. It's uh, it's not great news, but we can pull some positives out of it. Greg Browning, a former pro surfer and filmmaker, has been diagnosed with ALS. There is no cure for ALS. It's really, it's not a great thing to get. Basically, your muscles start to degenerate and weaken and it just slowly goes that way, but with proper treatment, you can extend your life and also just reduce discomfort significantly. And so GoFundMe was started to help support Greg. And I mean, if you look through the list of who's been donating, it's just all of surfing. And it is cool to see people rally around him like that. Um, I think the goal is 250. Last time I checked, it was close to 100. I think it'll get there. We made a donation from Stab. If you're in a position, I mean, it's it's a shitty situation, but it is great to see the surf community rallying together for Greg. Um, Carissa Moore, five grand. I think she's leading the pack right now. Yeah, five grand from her. So awesome. I think he was loved by everybody who he met. I think he's just a lovely, charming guy. So bad He created news. the drive-thru. He did create the drive-thru, um, which you kind of have to be a fun person for that, right? People have to like you just get in an RV with, barney and donovan and do the thing so anyway go check that out we've got a story on it on the site that you can find and go find the gofundly link through there um what else we got on mikey you did a joyride you told us about fins about black sticks construction yeah well and how spicy it is the last fin test that i did was testing three different templates so like the shape of the fin was different which i feel like is fairly obvious that you're going to feel a difference this time i tested two different sets of fins that were exactly the same in outline, but they just had different flex basically and a different foil. That's a, like kind of like another three-dimensional category that's kind of weird. But um, I thought that I wasn't going to feel any difference, to be honest. Like just two fins that are shaped exactly the same. I feel like they would move through the water the same. And maybe I'd feel like one was a little looser than the other, but it went so far beyond that. So I learned a lot and you can go watch that joyride on the site right now. Um, and beyond that, what a cool we- experiment. I really like that. I really like that. It is so f- cool to see like the apples, oranges, just like, Hey, you're eliminating. Cause I think that's the problem with surfboards. You rarely eliminate just one variable. Cause they're kind of costly to do that. Like you can't just change like a single to a double concave and do everything else the same. Like you're going to fuck with other things. So like just stripping something back where you really just get that like a B 
Um, nice Thank work. you. So that's what's on the site right now. Um, obviously, like I said, Highway's the big one, though. you got to go see the finale. And next week, we will reveal the Highway winners, as I said before. We also have a piece on surf parenting, the do's and don'ts. Uh, we have an India travel story oh by Jed Smith. And we have your story, which is going to be really fascinating, um, about how to breathe. And that's one that I need to work on. So, yeah, a lot of interesting stuff to come. <laughs> I need to work on it, too. I wrote it. All right. So you'll hear that next week. But for now, let's get into a surf sin. All right. We are getting straight into a, an elite surf sin. It's elite. Let's hear it. Ah! Hi, Steph. Uh, just got to confess a surf sin. Um, I've cheated in every one of the Better Beer Surf Quiz things to get free cases of beer. <laughs> You've already given me two, hoping to keep on getting getting them, as long as you run the quiz. Anyway, what's my penance? Fuck you, Buck. Oh! Wow. It's, it's so good because I think there's an element of ego that comes into play with the better beer quizzes because it's like probably if you're listening to this program you like us have spent so much time consuming this information borderline studying it and this is probably the only chance that you could take all the time and effort that you've invested into consuming that much and and studying surfing and actually turn it into something valuable and so immediately you see this quiz and you're like, this is my, this is why I want a chance. And even if you lived outside of Australia and couldn't win the beer, you at least wanted the validation of getting a high score. And so I think it was something that like people didn't even, it didn't even cross the mind at you. It was like, oh, of course I'm going to take this and do it right because like, you know, I have to prove it. Um, this kid just saw it. He went above us all. And <laughs> he's so fucking cheeky, drinking the beer while it's happening. I love it. I love it. I, I have a penance, but I got to say, I love it. I mean, what's not to love? And yeah, to your point, like, I don't think I got 100 on any of these, but just due to the ego factor, I was like, fuck, like, you know, I can't. Yeah, I would never even like think about cheating. Well, I guess the beers weren't available in the U.S. anyway or Costa Rica, but still, it was like if I, I felt like if I didn't earn it, then I didn't deserve it. And he, this guy, you know, you just go, he does it on his little incognito tab, opens up a second test, <laughs> rips it, puts his email in. He's getting a free case of beer every week. It's fucking brilliant. <laughs> Thank you for telling me to fuck myself too. It meant a lot. It really warms my heart. So the Instagram commenters love this one as well. Most people were basically saying no penance, but there was a good one. Somebody who did seem pretty offended by this, probably somebody who got like a 93% on the test or something like that. And that was by Bad Sack Posters. I think it's a brand perhaps. Uh, they said, this is a dog act. As penance, you must read Laird Hamilton's Life Rider front to back. Create your own quiz using information from the book. Post it to your story. And anyone who gets more than 50%, you must buy a six-pack of beer. Wow. That is uh, – <laughs> that's incredible. I didn't see that. That's really fucking good. Um, there was a comment. Better Beer shared this as well and asked people for a penance. And one said uh, – he has to sink an entire case of non-alcoholic beers in one setting. <laughs> that is fucking hilarious to me. I mean, I there's nothing I like non-alcoholic beers. I got I got a a non-alcoholic, a nice zero percent Heineken in the fridge right now. Maybe I'll have that later. Um, nothing wrong with them, but you really just lose your desire to drink them after like one or two. You're kind of like, oh yeah, I'm good. <laughs> so sinking a case would just be so fucking funny. <laughs> so some really good. I think this one really resonated. Um, yes. somebody be like oh man you must be fucking hammered and you're like no i'm not <laughs> so good so good um but yeah we i've, I've got a penance what's yours mikey okay so this actually reminds me a lot of the wetsuit return scam that we had as a uh surf sin a couple months ago i remember the guy in the bush that was also a really brilliant surf sin i really enjoyed that so I'm going to give a similar penance here. Um, basically, all you have to do is you have to give a case of beer to someone in the parking lot at your local surf break. And it can even be one of your free better beer cases, but it's got to be a full one. Um, and I just imagine if you go out and sort of like give somebody else a free case of beer, that's going to make 
hopefully multiple other people's lives great because you know i don't think somebody's just going to get a free case of beer and drink it by themselves that'd be pretty selfish i assume they're going to call their friends over maybe have a little thing at night like i think everyone will be better for it they'll tell people about it that'll make other people feel good and that'll make them want to do good in the world as well so this is one of those where you really like create a little pass it down the line thing and i think make the world a better place that way i don't want to punish him too bad because like we said he didn't really do something that wrong the sin wasn't that bad so i think just sort of pass it on yeah that's great you know that's i'm i'm going a similar way with it i'm just gonna be maybe slightly more nuanced um yeah it's like robin hood kind of for me like you gotta if you're gonna take you should take it to give it to the poor and so when i was a child uh significantly lower than the u.s legal drinking age of 21 what we used to do is we'd find a way to get beer and then sometimes we'd take it under the pier where the homeless man david evans lived and so we'd go and we'd have some beers with him it just it sounded like a fun thing to do at the time and let me tell you it was it was cool david had an interesting life after that um at one point he got beaten up and this went viral and there's a big gofundme for him um, and I think it got him some money, got him a home for a bit, and then didn't, it didn't go well. I think he's dead now. Sorry, David. Rest in peace. Um, I've also, I remember one time, I, I'm not a native to California, but I lived there for a while. I think the first Christmas I spent there, I was in a share house with a bunch of friends who were also non-natives. They left. I didn't go home that year, so I was kind of just bored. Nobody was around. I, I went out to the desert just for fun because I was bored, and, um, I remember I had a beer with a homeless man that night too. I was walking out of a liquor store and he was there and I was like, well, if I'm about to sleep in a bed, I'm going to, he did too. I don't know how, I don't know his name. I don't remember it, but basically I drinking with homeless people. Yeah. There's a side of it where like maybe their lives would be better. Maybe they have a substance abuse problem that may have contributed to their situation. But guess what? Sometimes, you know, it's Christmas and you're about to go sleep in a bed and somebody's going to sleep out in the cold. You just have a beer with them. Okay. And so I think he just needs to have a beer with a homeless person. Okay. Are there – I feel like there's not that many homeless people in Australia. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I've just – You can find some. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, just find – just – and again, I know there's a substance abuse thing, but it's sometimes – we'll sort that later. We'll just have an easy fix for now. All right? Let's just get to fucking – get. let's feel good for now with them. And RIP David Evans. This podcast – is in loving memory of David Evans. Thank you, as always, for listening to The Drop. If you have a surf sin of your own, you can send it to michael at stabmag.com or bucketstabmag.com. Film it vertically on your phone, 60 seconds or less, and if you get chosen to appear on this podcast and on the Stab Instagram, you will get a free year of Stab Premium. As we said earlier, there's a lot of good stuff coming up next week. We also have the WSL Finals still on the horizon. Stace and I are going to be doing a full breakdown of our favorites for that, and so much more. So until next week, over and out.